Today's passage comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Sohi. Good morning, everyone. A few people said good morning back. That's good. That's good. That's good. Uh, Our fall series, well, if I haven't met you first, my name is Eric also, and I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. Our fall series, we've been in it for about five weeks. We've been looking at the letter of 1 Peter. We've called it Living Hope. One of the main themes of 1 Peter, this entire letter, is that we can have hope no matter what we're facing. We can have hope no matter what suffering comes our way, no matter what kind of struggle we're facing that's inside of us, and no matter what's happening all around us in the world. We can have hope because Jesus is alive, because he's been resurrected And we have life in him. Because of that, we can hold on to hope. We can hold on to this reality that what will be, will be better than what is. That's the kind of hope Peter's talking about. Even when we don't feel like what will be, will be better than what is. And it seems like it's impossible, Peter says, we can have hope. So the next three weeks, just to give you a preview here, this morning and the following two weeks, we'll be looking at three very practical outworkings of this living hope. We'll be looking at hope in politics this morning, hope in marriage when it's hard, and hope in work when work is also very hard. So you'll see if you're, if you're looking at the outline for this morning on page 5, In the bulletin, I've entitled this message, Living Hope When Politics Are Wrong. Now, you might look at that and go, well, when are politics right? (laughs) The truth is, one of the main objections to Christianity, for those who don't believe, is that Christianity is just way too political, way too connected to political agendas or parties. And in addition to that, one of the main reasons Christians are now leaving churches, while many Christians and many uh, people whom I've spoken with feel like they can no longer be a part of the church they were a part of or a part of the, um, the, 
the part of the church that they've been a part of for so long uh, is because they feel like there has been this unholy alliance developing between Christianity, their faith, and politics. So 2020 is coming. It's an election year. Impeachment is in the news. Things are shaping up to be intense. Whatever the outcome, whatever your perspective is, the reality is we are in a very divisive political climate. And if you're here this morning, and if you're not a Christian, we are so glad that you are here, especially this morning. And you might have a lot of questions about this topic, Christianity and politics, about this alliance that you might perceive or see and have problems with between Christianity and politics. And one of the things I want to say this morning is you have good reason to be uncomfortable with this. And I'm glad you're here listening in. No way I'll be able to address all your questions or concerns, and I'd be glad, very happy to talk with you after this message if you have more. My Christian friends, as we listen to this, Peter is talking to us, the church. He's talking to Christians And I won't be able to answer all of our questions, too big, too complex of a topic. And Peter doesn't address everything here, but what he does do in these verses, in this passage, is provide us with, I believe, a framework for Christians that was valid in his day, in their political climate, when they would probably say politics are very wrong for us. And I believe what Peter has to say applies to us and in any political situation we might find ourselves. And this is extremely important for us as Christians in our time, in our day, to hold on to hope, to have unity among Christians, and as well as to maintain a faithful witness to what is the message of Christianity and to be clear about that. This is very important. We've got four, uh, four things that I want to point out in this text. I haven't given to you, to you ahead of time in the outline. I want to build uh, on these one at a time. So if you're following along, we will fill in the blanks on the outline. Let's start with this, political authority. I think that's the first place we need to begin and where Peter tells us we need to begin. The first and most fundamental thing Peter teaches his readers and us that we need to be clear on is who our real political authority is. This is a starting point for being a good citizen and for proper political engagement as a Christian. Authority. Understanding this. And having a firm conviction in this, that God has always been, God is now and will always be in charge and in control. He is the real king. He is the one who has all power and all authority over all things, all nations, all rulers, all leaders. Where's that in the text? Look with me at verse 13. This is the point Peter's making here at the very beginning of his teaching on politics. He says, verse 13, submit to every human authority. 
The translation of this is a little bit debated. Is it and should it be translated every human creature? The word there is, is creature, a created thing, or every human created institution, every human authority. Either way, the idea that Peter is getting across, the emphasis he has here, is on the humanness, the creatureliness of all governments and of all leaders. They are all human. They're all creatures. And Peter is being very clear here on the massive distinction between creator and creature. Between God's authority and human political authority. Human political authority is derivative, it's limited, and it's temporary. While God's authority is intrinsic, it's total, and it's eternal. It's like the difference of light coming from the sun or coming from the moon. It's like human, human authority for it to boast. Human authority to think that it's in charge and in control is like the moon saying, I have authority over light. When in reality, it all comes from the light of the sun. This is so fundamental. This is so important because, as we'll see here, it gives us the reason why Peter calls us to do the things he's going to tell us to do. The reason why we honor, the reason why we would submit or obey any human authority because, look at verse 13, because, the reason why, he says it's because of the Lord. Our ultimate authority tells us to submit to every human authority, not because it's best for us, not for our own sake, not to make our lives easier or to gain standing or to get ahead or to avoid controversy and stay out of it. No, and not because of them, not because of the human authorities, for their sake, because they're in charge of you. No, none of that. He says the reason is because of the Lord. Because he is our ultimate authority. Now, if you look at verse 16, Peter develops this further. He says, Christians, submit as free people. What he's saying here is you are free. No person, no institution, no government controls you or owns you. You are not their slaves. You are not their subjects. You are not their servants. You are Always, first and foremost, God's servants. He is your Lord alone. The Apostle Paul in Romans 13 makes a similar point where he says this, There is no authority except from God and those that have been instituted by God. Now that can raise all sorts of questions, and it probably should. We think about all the terrible atrocities done by governments, by those in power. We think of all the injustices, and those are hard questions. But the point that Peter is making, the point that Paul is making here is that God is working over, God is working in spite of, God is working above all flawed political authorities, all political powers of the world in order to accomplish His plans and his purposes. 
And yes, there is a lot of mystery in this. But think throughout the story of Scripture. We think of Israel and Pharaoh in Egypt. How God was working above and in spite of Pharaoh to accomplish his purposes for and through Israel. We think of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, the ancient ruler of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was one of history's most powerful rulers. He was a ruthless conqueror. He was the ultimate narcissistic megalomaniac. And you know what God calls him in Isaiah? My servant, Nebuchadnezzar. In the same way in the book of Isaiah, God calls Cyrus of Persia, another ruthless conqueror. My servant, even my anointed one. And we look at that and go, how? how? (laughs) Say what? Cyrus, Nebuchadnezzar, these pagan rulers? We come to Acts chapter 4 to a prayer meeting where Peter, the author of this letter, he was there. He was praying. He had just been imprisoned and beaten by the authorities. And the early church was gathered to pray. And when they prayed about how to respond to the mistreatment they were receiving from those who had political power, they prayed this, God, you've accomplished your purposes even when the kings of the earth and the rulers have assembled together against your Messiah. They were talking and praying about the cross. That even in the greatest act of political evil ever committed, the crucifixion, in Acts 4.28, they said they could only do what God's hand and God's will had allowed and planned to occur. So I know there's a lot of questions with that. But what we can affirm is this. God's rule and plan cannot be stopped even by the worst and most evil political leaders. Every ruler, every leader, every president, every emperor is accountable to God and will answer to Him for how they used their role in authority to keep order, to promote good, and to do justice. But here's a crucial point of application that I want all of us to consider this morning. Something in our political climate that we need to hear this loud and clear. So hear this. Verse 17. God is our authority, so fear God. Do not fear political authority. Do not fear political action or inaction. Do not fear political decisions. Do not fear political results. None of our political ideas, none of our political actions, none of our political words as Christians should come from a place of fear. And we should not be caught up or manipulated by fear when it comes to politics and the implications of political decisions. This is the starting point. Peter says this, fear God and only God. Point two, the second foundational principle that Peter teaches here and throughout this letter that we need to be also crystal clear on and about is this, political allegiance. Where our political 
allegiance lies as Christians. In verse 11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles. Strangers and exiles. This is the third time that Peter has called them strangers and exiles. Verse 1 1, he opened the letter with this. He said, I'm writing to you as exiles. And that was jarring for them. They said, I've lived here all my life. I've been a citizen of such and such a country. What do you mean? He repeated it again. Chapter 1, verse 17, he said, I'm appealing to you as those living as strangers. And here in chapter 2, verse 11, he says it once again. You are resident aliens. The place where you live, wherever it happens to be, is not your true country. It's not your true nation. Last week, and if you have your Bible, you can look at this. We saw a few verses earlier in chapter 2, verse 9. Peter says to them, here's who you are. You're strangers and you're exiles, but you are also a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. Now, do you see the political implications of this? Peter is saying Christians are citizens of a holy nation. God's holy nation first and only secondarily citizens of the cities, the countries, the places where God has placed them. So, a Christian's political allegiance is first and primarily to their king and their nation, Jesus and his kingdom. It's very fascinating. I found... um, a letter. I'd heard about it before, but never really took the time to read it. You can see it, part of it in the, the reflection quotes here on page one in the bulletin. It's called An Epistle to Diognetus. It's a letter written by someone, uh, not exactly sure who or the situation involved, but this person was trying to explain Christianity to someone else who was unfamiliar with it. And so here, they're trying to explain what's going on politically with these Christians and culturally. They don't seem to fit any category. And so in writing this, we'll put a quote up here from this epistle. It says this, But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, They, these Christians, display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. Some people translate that strange method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country. Every land of their birth as a land of strangers." This was written in the second century. He's saying, who are these people? They're at home, but they're not home. It's like they're representing some other place in the places they live. Like they're ambassadors. Like they form an embassy of a different city, of a different nation, ruled by a different ruler. And that's how we are to think of ourselves. We just celebrated baptism 
And we love to emphasize how baptism is like a welcome into the family of God. But baptism is not only a a welcome to the family ceremony, it's also a citizenship ceremony where you are welcomed into the new city, the new nation. You have a new citizenship in this holy nation. So what does that mean as American Christians? It means our political allegiance does not lie primarily with our nation. It does not and cannot lie with the political party or a political agenda, but only with Jesus. He is our leader. He is our king. He is our only president. With discernment, with wisdom, with prayer, we support causes and leaders as we see fit. But there is a subtle, there is a devastating temptation for Christians to confuse our allegiance. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in the Screwtape Letters. If you're not familiar with the Screwtape Letters, uh, what it is is a very imaginative approach where Lewis um, has one senior devil, senior demon, writing to a lesser demon in training about how to thwart the work of the enemy who is God in a particular patient's or person's life. So in one of these letters... The older demon says to the younger demon, if you can't stop spiritual growth from happening in your patient, then the next best strategy is to corrupt it. Hold on, hold on to that slide for a moment. I'll come back to that. Let's go to the previous slide. There we go. Because I want to read um, a portion before that. If you can't stop spiritual growth, then corrupt it. And what this demon says, now I'm reading from the letter, says the best point of attack would be the borderline between theology and politics. Several of the patient's new friends are very much alive to the social implications of their religion. That in itself is a bad thing, but good can be made out of it. And then he says this, about the general connection between Christianity and politics. Our position is more delicate Certainly we do not want men to allow their Christianity to flow over into their political life. For the establishment of anything like a really just society would be a major disaster. Let's put the slide up. On the other hand, we do want and want very much to make men treat Christianity as a means. Preferably, of course, as a means to their own advancement. But failing that as a means to anything. But the enemy will not be used as a convenience. Men or nations who think they can revive the faith in order to make a good society might just as well think they can use the stairs of heaven as a shortcut to the nearest chemist's shop. Fortunately, it is quite easy to coax humans around this little corner. I thought that was so relevant for us in our modern climate. God will not be a means to a political end. Even a good political end. And we have to hear this clearly. When Christians allow themselves to be used as a means to a political end, we have, I think Lewis is right, compromised the gospel. And we've been deceived by the devil. 
This happens in our country on both sides of the political spectrum. And we cannot let it happen if we hope to maintain a pure allegiance to Jesus and his call to us. To show others Jesus, that they might consider giving their allegiance to him. Political authority, political allegiance. Having laid down these two fundamental pieces, our authority and our allegiance as Christians, now we're ready to see what he says, what Peter says, about our political responsibilities. That's the third point. There are two main responsibilities Peter says we have when it comes to the political realm. We'll look at them one at a time. The first is repeated. It's the one that grabs our attention and we go, what is that all about? It's the responsibility to submit. Verse 13 and verse 16. Now, when I say the word submit, when you read it, when you heard it read, most likely you just felt like uncomfortable, maybe resistant to that word. It's probably the least favorite word, I think, in our modern Western world, especially if we're talking about politics. We want to talk about freedom. We'll talk about our rights. But submission... That's the last thing we ever want to think about. That sounds dangerous. That sounds oppressive. What is Peter talking about? How is this one of our main political responsibilities? Well, first, we need to know what submission, according to the Bible, is not. We'll talk about what it is. Submission is not resignation. It is not passivity. Submission is not giving up. Submission is not condoning abuse or evil. Submitting is not the same thing as being subjugated and does not mean absolute obedience. Peter himself said in Acts, when confronted by the Jewish authorities and commanded by them to stop talking about Jesus, he said in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than man. So God's authority is higher than, trumps all authority. Even then, he escaped the prison that the authorities had put him into. So submission does not mean absolute obedience. What does it mean? The Greek word submission is a compound word. It comes from two words, hupotasso. Hupo means to be under, to be arranged under. Tasso um, means to arrange. So hupo is under. Tasso is order, arranged under, placed under. Now, there's two ways to think about that. Right now, you're like, it's not helping. (laughs) It still sounds like subjugation and oppression, but let me explain it like this. There's two ways to to look at this idea of of hupotasso, of submission, of being placed under. Consider these two ways. One, to be placed under is to lose status, to be lower than, to be weak, to lose my freedom and rights. I'm being kept down. Or, that's way number one, number two. Or two, a choice to place yourself under, to hold up, to be strong, to use my freedom and rights for others. One says, I am being kept down. One says, I am holding up. Which is it? Well, if you placed... um, I was in a a beautiful building yesterday, and I was noticing the pillars. You could look at these pillars 
in this, uh, in this building. You say to the pillar, you need to be placed underneath the roof. We need to be subject to the roof, to the roof, submit to the roof. Or if you say to a marshmallow, you need to be placed under a car. Well, we know the pillar is strong. Holding up the roof, the roof will collapse without the pillar. The marshmallow will be crushed by the weight of the car. The Bible's call to submit is the call to be a pillar, to use your strength out of choice to hold up something for its good. Let me define it like this. Submission is the choice to yield or defer my own will to uphold the will of another. In politics, it means the choice to yield my own will to uphold the common good. That's the call. Defining it like this doesn't mean it makes it any easier. But we could use some examples here to clarify this. So the speed limit, we could talk about taxes, we could talk about littering. Those are easier areas to submit. We may not want to drive the speed limit. We may may not want to follow follow traffic laws, but we do. We submit to those laws for the common good. Taxes, we don't want to pay taxes. Who wants to pay taxes? Who wants to give money to anyone? But we submit that for the common good. Peter says here, it's God's will that every Christian learn to submit. Specifically, he says, one of the ways that we submit, how this looks, is by showing honor. He says, honor everyone, honor the emperor. Now, the emperor at this time likely was the emperor Nero, the Roman emperor Nero. History tells us he killed his own mom. He killed his first wife, all for political reasons. He likely set fire to Rome himself, his own city, and he blamed the Christians for it. He was probably the emperor who beheaded Paul and would later crucify Peter, the author of this letter. We say, wow, Peter said, honor that emperor? The one who was in charge of the Roman Empire, who subjugated his people, who occupied their nation and persecuted Christians? Peter says, honor him. Honor everyone as made in the image of God. Even those whom you disagree with, who don't honor you, show honor. That's our first political responsibility. The second is this. Repeated twice in this text as well, do good. Do the good that we see needs to be done, especially the good that isn't being done by anyone else. Paul says in Romans, do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. A government can order, can legislate, can punish, can protect. But one thing a government cannot do is legislate good. This has to come from somewhere else. And who will work for the common good, even when it costs them, even when it doesn't directly benefit them? Peter says that's the role of God's people. That's the role of those who are citizens of heaven. It's the role of the church to say we will. Now, in verse 15, Peter applies this in the political realm and in the public sphere. He says, this is God's will. God's will is that our influence 
will be mainly through our actions, not our words in the public sphere. In doing deeds, as one person put it, that shout the gospel. It's not words. It's not an argument that silences people. Words tend to make people louder and more vocal. When Peter says those who are ignorant or foolish, he's not insulting people. He's saying people who don't believe in God, who do not order their lives around God and his word. People who do not know Jesus and how good he is and never tasted that. It's doing good that shows them and silences people and maybe silence them enough so that they're ready to listen to the gospel. Peter says, this is the political battle worth fighting. Fighting our own selfishness, our own sin, so that we can show others Jesus' goodness. Look again at verses 11 and 12. Peter's talking about a war, a battle. The war he's talking about is not against any culture or government. It is not against any particular political party or political leader. He says the war is against the desires that wage war against us to prevent us from doing good, from doing good work so God is glorified, so people can know him and see who Jesus is. He says abstain from all of those. That's the battle. And as Christians, we have to confess and admit that we've gone wrong, very wrong, in expending so much energy fighting for and against causes Cultures, subcultures, political causes and candidates and parties, all the while losing this battle, the battle against our selfish, sinful desires. Instead of fighting for holiness, instead of fighting for love and doing good to bring others to Jesus, we wage war in a way that pushes people away from Jesus, even other Christians. Peter says, love the brotherhood. even those Christians whom you disagree with. We can win a battle and lose the war. Authority, allegiance, responsibilities. And finally and fourthly, knowing why we are to do it, knowing what we are to do, how can we do it? This is the issue of power. We need to know where real political power is found. When we think of power, we think of the ability to to be in control, the ability to force people to do things, having the place and the position of power in the world. If we have, we think, that kind of power, we can get things done. If we have that kind of power, then we could make a real difference in the world. One former presidential candidate said, if Christians will simply show up and vote our values, we will turn this country around. What would Peter say to that? I think he would say, you've got power all backwards. We think political power is the great force for change, the ultimate power. Peter is saying, this is wrong. This is backwards. There is a greater power at work that not even the most strongest and greatest political power can even hold a candle to. It's a power not found in any political position or in influencing those who are in political positions. Real political power is found in the gospel of the king and his kingdom. 
In our country, both conservatives and liberals have one thing in common. Both are looking to the government as the power and the most potent force for good, for the transformation of the world. While this text does say governmental leaders, politicians have influence, their power is like a drop in the bucket compared to the power of the gospel. And the power of the gospel works in a completely, absolutely different way than all worldly power. What is this power? How does it work? Well, a few verses later in chapter 2, really at the heart of Peter's teaching on submission in all these areas, politics, marriage, work, whatever it is, he puts this description of real power in action. Let's put it up on the screen. It's 21 through 25. He says, The power is found in the one who yielded his will, who yielded his life to do the good that could not be done by anyone else. This is the centerpiece of Peter's teaching here. This is the power and the pattern for us. He says, You were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's power. To be a Christian is to believe that Jesus' submission is our salvation and is the power to transform all things. This week I was reading Mark 14. It's our CBR reading. Mark 14 and 15 are the last days of Jesus. And what struck me in reading Mark 14 this time around is I was reading and studying this text in Peter were two things. In Jesus' last days, on his way to the cross, Jesus is more in control than ever in his ministry. Than any other time, he says things like, a donkey's going to be waiting for you over there. Get it. There's the donkey, and he gets it. There's a room that's going to be over there. It's going to be all set up for you. Oh, there's the room. Open it up. The guy will let you in and say, you can have it. And it happens. He says, one of you will betray me. And it happened. Peter, you will deny me. And it happened. He is in control. He is clearly sovereign and powerful over all of it. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, said, Don't you know I have the authority to release you? And I have the authority to crucify you. And Jesus said, You would have no authority. No authority over me at all if it hadn't been given to you from above. This is a man in control. This is power. And yet he's also more submissive than any other time. He prays in the garden, not my will but yours. 
The authorities slander him and beat him and taunt him and mock him. They're calling him king over and over again. Oh, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? They write the king of the Jews on his cross. And Peter says, Jesus submitted to all these authorities that really had no authority over him. He did not sin. He didn't deceive. He didn't insult. He didn't threaten, though he was sinned against, lied to, insulted, threatened, and killed. Peter says his submission was his greatest act of power. He was crushed under the weight of sin. He bore it all. Why would he submit to this? To uphold us, he says. To uphold us from death. To uphold us from sin and judgment. This is true strength. This is the greatest power ever unleashed in the world. This is power to heal, Peter says. This is power to bring life out of death. This is power to return all those who stray back to their shepherd and their leader. The gospel of our crucified and risen king's submission is the power of our salvation. It's the power to transform what's impossible. And Peter says it's the example he has given to us to follow in his steps, to bring the power of his kingdom to the nations. A few final thoughts. How is this practical? How does this change anything? If we believe this, if we believe this and make this our pattern in the political realm. It means Christians who believe the gospel would be the most humble people in any country or city or any place with the ability to outdo everyone in showing honor and yielding our will to uphold the common good. If we believe the gospel, it would mean that Christians are the most sacrificial people in any country or place, unrelenting to do good even at cost to us. Doing the good we see needs to be done. That isn't being done. Final words. So, Christians should not rant, complain, attack, wage war against any political party or political leadership on any side. Discussions, yes. Civil dialogue, yes. Please, yes. But we should not think we've done anything when we just virtue signal our position on social media or create a discussion or an argument just for the sake of argument. So can we have a moratorium on all of that, on our lack of submission? Because that's what it is. But with great honor for the difficult task of those who are in power, as God's slaves, we use the freedom he has given us in the gospel, freedom not to be afraid of anyone or anything, freedom of knowing he is with us, when we do his will, freedom of knowing what brings human flourishing to the world, freedom from sin and selfishness to band together to show as much as we're able, even at great cost to us, how good the real king is. How good it is to be known and loved by him. If there are issues of life at stake, the unborn, or the lives that matter, we find the good that needs to be done and we do it. If there are issues of justice at stake, children separated from families, continued inequalities, 
We find the good that there is to do, and we do it. If there are issues of community breaking down, loneliness at stake, we find the good that needs to be done, and we do it. If there are issues of poverty, oppression, we find the good that needs to be done, and we do it. Friends, Peter says the government is powerless to do that kind of good. But in the name of Jesus, our Lord, in the freedom he gives us, he gives us the strength and the power, he says, do good in my name so that others may taste that the Lord is good. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, this is important truth for us, but hard truth for us. I pray for all of us as we're sitting in this that you would remind us that you would humble us, that you would break us knowing that the source of our salvation was a submission of power by Jesus, our Lord, your Son, as we have conversations, as we try to think the right thoughts, as we try to discern the right actions, when it's really hard with all the political noise that's surrounding us, I pray that you would give us boldness and humility to trust you in all of it and boldness and humility to know what it looks like to point others to your goodness and to trust in your power and the power of the gospel that's at work in us and we pray would be more and more at work through us. In Jesus' name, amen.